Okay, Psalm 57 is where we are tonight. Psalm 57. And you notice in the heading, it says, For the choir director set to Al-Tashath. Do any of you have something different for Al-Tashath? Do not destroy. Do not destroy. A lot of your versions have. Do not destroy, which maybe it's which the translation of that phrase. Uh, but that phrase Al Tashath is found at the top of Psalm Psalm fifty eight. It's found at the top of Psalm fifty nine. And it's found at the top in the heading of Psalm seventy five. Some people think that's the song to which it was sung, but we, we don't we, we don't know for sure. But it says, a mitcom of David when he fled from Saul in a cave, and we'll talk about what incident this refers to in a moment. But the text, Psalm 57, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry out to the Most High, to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Selah. God will send forth His loving kindness and His truth. My soul is among the lions. I must lie among those who breathe for fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let Your glory be above the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a it before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Silah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above the earth. I uh, just realized there's a moment of crisis here. I left my notes uh, in the car. Christian, would you, or Isaiah can run. He's. <laughs> he can run while he's young. Yeah. But I apologize for that. But a couple of these, I can't remember every point. And I just realized. Okay. What, what are some of your initial ideas about Psalm 57? What are some things that you notice about the psalm? I recognize some song lyrics. Yeah. I'm sure came from this. Okay. Like what what were you thinking of? Uh, yeah, I will awaken the dawn versus Yes. Yes. Give thanks to the Wake the dawn with praises. Yes. 
Awake my glory, awake harp and dawn, a lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Yes, very good. Um, what 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 other things? Anything stands out? David's desperation. <clears throat> I think just in different places. Okay. One of the things was among lions, for example. Yes. I think some of the things you see here is how ferocious his enemies are. And to add to my mistakes tonight, I, I realize I can't spell ferocious, so we'll just <laughs> abbreviate that. Ferocious David's enemies are. And how um, how desperate he is for God's help. How desperate he is for God's help. And also, um, there are 22 references to God in this psalm. 22 references to God, and that was... In the word biblical commentary by Tate, that he makes reference to that, either speaking of God, either using another title for God, or personal pronoun in reference to him. What? I did, but don't worry about it. Come on, man. Yeah, it's more important to be in class than. I know, it's more important you be in class, and I'll just miss. That, but, but this. Well, what's that? It's important that class is good. It is important that class be good. We're going to test his memory. Okay. You are going to test my memory. You know, this is always one of my biggest fears. It's one of those you wake up in a nightmare and cold sweat. Well, well, I'm living, I'm living John's nightmare. So, so what, what I was wanting to do and what I was waiting for the notes for. And one commentary did a really good job with this. I, I think it was uh, this. I didn't bring this commentary, though. <laughs> but, yes, it was. It was in this commentary. He made four points of comparison between Psalm 57 And 1 Samuel 24. Now, 1 Samuel 24, David and his men are hiding in the cave. Remember. Saul comes into the cave. David's men are all lined at the back of the cave. Saul thinks he's all alone. And David and his men, looking out toward the light, can see Saul. Saul can't see anything. And David's men says, this is the day that the Lord has told you about, that the Lord has given your enemy into your hand. And David takes his sword and goes over and cuts off the edge of Saul's robe. His conscience bothered him that he cut off the edge of his robe. And so he comes back to, uh, he comes back to Saul after Saul leaves the cave and he says, you know, I had a chance to kill you, and I didn't. And here's proof as you look at this piece of your robe. But these are some points of comparison. Do you know when the Bible says in Psalm 51, 57, verse 1, Psalm 57, verse 1, it speaks of hiding under the Lord's wings uses a plural there. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. 
That is the same word used for the edge of Saul's garment. Same word. And I believe the passages are 1 Samuel 24, verse 5, because it was used more times than the, the writer mentioned. But I think it's verse 4, verse 5, and a couple of times in verse 11. So that is the same word used there. And the fact that he cut off an edge of Saul's robe, and yet his protection is under the wings of God, may be a significant point. Also, you notice in verse 5 that the text says, this is Psalm, Psalm 57, um, excuse me, it's verse 4, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears. David is being injured and harmed by the words, words of the sons of man or the sons of men. Actually, the Hebrew word for man is singular, but because sons is plural, they translate men, plural. Now, when David tells Saul, he says, why are you listening to man when man tells you that I am trying to kill you? And I believe that's 24 verse 9. You can look at the text. But just as men were making false charges against David and doing damage to him, that is the situation in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Then, uh, a third point uh, of connection is, is Saul, this, this talks about in verse 6, it says, They dug a pit before me, um, they dug a pit, okay, excuse me, verse 6, They prepared a net for my steps, my soul is bowed down. My soul, or my life, he mentions here in this verse. And in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse, 1 Samuel 24 verse 11, he says, Saul has tried to, you're trying to take my life. And then the fourth point of connection that he makes is Psalm 57, verse 6, expresses our point of Lex Talionis that they're going to fall into the pit which they have dug and they're going to be caught in the trap that they have laid for others. They're going to be caught in the net that they have laid for others. And the writer says that is the whole picture of 1 Samuel 24. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul is seeking David's life, but it ends up, while he's seeking David's life, David is powerful and he's helpless before David that David could have done to him anything that he wanted. But he says the whole narrative of the chapter in 1 Samuel 24 fits this idea of Lex Talionis. Is that plain? Is that clear? And I get my verses lined up.
properly because uh, in the Hebrew text in both situations the Hebrew numbering of the verses is a little different than the English number and I had to make those mental adjustments so if it is off look right around it and I think you'll see this idea what was it? You got it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, what you see, but the thing that really fascinates me about making this connection to David is you look at First Samuel, and David is just running away from God. Or excuse me, he's running away from Saul. While you look at Psalms, he's running to God. Let me say that again accurately. But in 1 Samuel, you get the picture of David just running away from Saul. But in the process of running away from Saul, he's running to God. In the process of seeking refuge in the cave, he's really seeking refuge in the Lord. He's in the cave. He's hiding in the cave. He's protecting himself as best as he can. But his real source of security, his real source of refuge is God. And I think that's all that's profound, Mary. And Saul's trying to kill David and God's continually thwarting him. So you see. Yes, absolutely. A good statement that summarizes that, Mary, is the statement in 1 Samuel, right in this context, 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. Now remember 1 Samuel 22 also talks about David in a cave. 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2, David departed from there, escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, he went down there, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So 1 Samuel 22 is David in a cave. 1 Samuel 24 is David in a cave. And right between that, the passage I was mentioning to Mary, 1 Samuel 23 verse 14, at the end of the verse, Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Every day Saul was seeking him, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So yes, in spite of all the diligent search that's being put out by um, by Saul to find David, God is protecting him. It's very interesting, right after that statement is made, Saul sought him every day, but the Lord would not let him find him. Right after that, Jonathan finds David just like that. Jonathan can find him no problem. Saul can't find him wherever he goes. Um, But, okay, looking in Psalm 57, be gracious to me. You, You notice anything about that opening? Kind of strikes you as familiar. Be gracious to me, O God. It's the same two words that Psalm 56 opened with. Be gracious to me, O God. And now in Psalm 57, be gracious to me, O God. And he is so urgent and he is so desperate, as Boyd mentioned earlier. His enemies are ferocious and he's desperate. He makes that same, he says that same word, makes that same cry again. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. 
So twice he appeals for God to show him mercy, to show him grace. He knows that God is over all the earth, as he will emphasize in this psalm. He knows he is dependent upon God and his help and his protection. And so he is begging God, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. Ultimately, his refuge was not the cave. His refuge is God for my soul, my life. One translation I looked at even said, for I take refuge in you. And that may be the best way to render that particular word here in this place. I take refuge in you and the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. He uses take refuge two times here. One I, or my soul, takes refuge in you, and then in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. The picture is of a bird gathering her chicks under her wings. Last week, the person with whom I was staying said for a while uh, they raised chickens and, and said still they, they they don't have those anymore, but they do uh, have some chickens that just kind of wander in the neighborhood. And one day they observed uh, a mother with a few chicks and some kind of a predator come that scared them for a moment. And they saw this perfectly illustrated. I mean, she just gathered her little ones under her wing and protected them. And the predator left. And that is the way he pictures himself fleeing from his enemy and fleeing to God for protection. It says, until destruction passes by. It is like this hurricane force um, wind is coming against him and he won't shelter in the shadow of God's wings. Verse 2 I cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send heaven, he will send from heaven and save me. He who reproaches him who tramples upon me, Salah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. Now, in verse 3, notice. It says, he reproaches him who tramples on me. Now, again, here is a point of connection with Psalm 56. Psalm 56 used this very rare verb, trampled, both in verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. In verse 2, my foes have trampled upon me all day long. Same idea in Psalm 57 verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. Now I read this statement today. This word reproaches used as a verb often in the Old Testament. I don't know the exact number but, but I mean frequently enough. But this is the only time God is the subject of this verb. In other words, God is the one 
who sends reproach upon someone. And who does he send reproach upon? He sends reproach upon those who trample me. Those who trample David. And isn't that ultimately what happens in this story between David and Saul? Not just this individual account, but in the whole account of the story of David and Saul. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah. I don't think we've had too many Selahs in the middle of a verse. But you have it here, and it says, God will send forth his loving kindness and truth. Now, again, this is a key point I wanted to make. In 57 verse 3, you have this same verb send used two times. In the first part of the verse, God is going to send from heaven and save me. And then He's going to send His loving kindness and truth. Every time we are rescued from a foe, every time we find ourselves in an impossible situation that somehow we get out of, it is an evidence of God's loving kindness and God's truth. He will send from heaven and save me. And there He will send forth His loving kindness and His truth. The passage that Boyd mentioned earlier as he talks about his ferocious enemies. He says, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Now, if you were to read this literally, and Raymond acknowledged to me the other day, he confessed to me that he sometimes is too prone to read the text literally. So let's put ourselves in Raymond's mind a moment. And I will lie down among lions. What biblical character are you going to think of? Daniel, Daniel 6, yes, Daniel 6. But I think in this particular case, it's probably an, it's imagery, it is a, a metaphor. And lions are often a picture of the enemy in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 7 verse 2, he will tear my soul like a lion. That was Psalm 7 and verse 2. In Psalm 10, verse 9, he lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. So, those are just a couple of instances. I'm not going to read every time that the enemies, the wicked, are compared to lions, but they may not be that powerful. They may not be people who could physically uh, rip us apart. In the same way, but their words can do a lot of damage, can't they? He said, My soul is among lions, and I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. By the way, a couple of interesting notes I am remembering. <laughs> I must lie. The only other time the Psalms speak of someone lying, in that sense lying down, is in Psalm 4 verse 8. And that's someone who lies down in safety. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, 
for you alone make me to dwell in safety. So there, he's lying down in peace and safety here. He's lying among lions. Now, what time of the day is it that you generally lie down? Nighttime. Nighttime, yes. Nighttime is usually. And one of the Psalms, this is Psalm 104, particularly associates the nighttime with the time that lions prowl. This is Psalm 104, verse 20 and 21. It said, You appointed darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. That was Psalm 104, verses 20 and 21. If you want to sleep with the lions, the worst time is the night is what that passage tells us. And so he is lying among dangerous people at the most dangerous time of the day. Military images are combined because the teeth of these sons of men are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. That is a dangerous setting. He's going to come back to these wicked in verse 6. But he interrupts this picture of the wicked to tell us about God. In verse 5, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above the earth. And you notice that that same kind of refrain is in verse 11. Verse 5, verse 11. Be exalted above the heavens. God's reign is shown in the midst of a world where there are lions with sharp swords for teeth that are waiting to devour us. God's reign is shown in that kind of world. Is that the picture that we see as David is fleeing from Saul? Yeah, that's pretty much the picture. As David is being chased and hounded by Saul, he says at one point, there is but a stealth between me and death. 1 Samuel 20, I think verse 3. and But God is still reigning. Be exalted above the heavens. Then in verse 6, They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Now, this is our idea of lex talionis. Um, the boomerang effect of sin is the way other people refer to it. You throw the boomerang, it comes back and hits you. And all of these are pictures of what sin does. And we saw this picture in Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. He has dug a pit and hallowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend on his own pate. That was 7, 15 and 16. In 9, 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. Now think about this. They lay a net... And they carefully disguise so they can catch their prey. Or they dig a pit to catch their prey. But they so carefully disguise it that others can fall into it and they can catch their prey easily. But 
their their effective work works against them because they catch are caught by their own head and they fall into their own pit. That's the idea of Lex Talionis that ultimately the plots that we lay for others end up destroying us. The book of Esther is a good illustration of that, isn't he? Is Mordecai as as Haman is hanging on the gallows which he prepared for Mordecai. And you also notice the Salah in verse 6. What, what thoughts do you all have, John? What's the, uh, in verse 6, what's, what, what, what's the point of my soul is bound down falling right in the middle of all of that? I, I think that is just to, to show how they, their afflictions have, uh, have, to tr- have troubled him, how disturbed him, broken him down, exhausted his strength. He's oppressed. Yeah, it, it, I think I think it's that idea. But in the in the midst of that, we see a picture of his desperation. While at the same time, the Lord is judging his enemies on on the sides of that. Sarah, it's as if in verse four you've got hanging out with the lions and you've also got hanging out with fire which is another image from Daniel. Yes, good point. So it's just it's kind of interesting how that Yes, fits. Daniel 3. Yes, the lions and the fire. Uh, that's a good point. And overlook that. Well, what else? Other thoughts there? The tone of these first 6 verses is Desperation, maybe we could say, but but his enemies are strong, and he needs God's help, and he needs it right away. I mean, be gracious to me, oh God, be gracious to me. The fact that he begs him twice to be gracious to him right at the beginning shows he views his situation as desperate and his need as great. But when we get to verses seven through eleven, the tone is going to change. It's upbeat. Uh, he is thankful. He is praising God. And uh, you may have seen this pointed out, but Psalm 108, verses 1 through 5, basically repeats Psalm 57, 7 through 11. Psalm 57, 7 through 11. Now, in verse 8, or verse 7, excuse me, my heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. My heart is steadfast. A good passage to write down as a um, in your margin of your Bible is Psalm 78, verse 37, beside of verse 7. Psalm, this is particularly by the part, my heart is steadfast. In Psalm 78, verse 37 God is reviewing the history of Israel and says their heart was not steadfast toward him. The fact that David can say, My heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast, is contrary to Israel's history because as a whole, their heart was not steadfast toward him. But he says, My heart is steadfast, oh God. My heart is steadfast, and I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Ultimately, is he sees God as the center of the universe. And he calls upon God to be exalted above the heavens and to let his glory fill the earth because this is the center of reality to him. 
Every victory, every triumph, every deliverance was a reason to praise God and a reason to give thanks to God. And so he says, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. And the word that is translated, um, my glory, (laughs) means, this is deep, people. It means my glory. Um, What I was thinking is translated, awake my soul in some versions. And it's actually the word for glory. Do any of you have a version that has the word soul? Awake my soul. And some, some versions do have that. But awake my glory, awake harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. Um, sometimes... NIV. NIV, okay. NIV. Um, sometimes the psalmist addresses himself. Like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in we... All that's within me, bless His holy name. And it begins with bless the Lord, O my soul. And it ends with bless the Lord, O my soul. So you're not crazy if you speak to yourself. And even if you try to encourage yourself. Awake, my glory. Awaken, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. In verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing your praises among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens. Your truth reaches to the clouds. Some people say because Psalm 108 picks up Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11 that really what you have in Psalm 57, even though it's brief, is you have two separate psalms that are merged together. Verses 1-6 through is one psalm. Verses 7-11 through is a second psalm. The strongest argument against that, I think, are just to show connections within the psalm. And maybe the strongest connection of all is that 57 verse 3 mentions His loving kindness. His loving kindness and truth. And then 57.10 does the same thing. It mentions His loving kindness and truth. These key qualities of God are mentioned in the beginning of the psalm, the end of the psalm. Reason for us to see, I think, the unity of the psalm. Originally, in verse 3, God will send forth His loving kindness and truth. Here, His loving kindness reaches to the heavens and His truth to the clouds. You see this same kind of idea In Psalm 36, Psalm 36 and verse 5, it says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. Your righteousness, verse 6, is like the mountains of God. And your judgments are like the great deep. The same kind of idea. 
as high as the heavens are above the earth. And what, what, what do you think of next? As high as the heavens are above the earth, biblically you think, so are my ways above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. Uh, Isaiah 55, 8, 9. But we could also say, that's not the exact wording here, but it's the same idea. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness and His truth. And be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Now, what ideas do David? A couple of different things. Uh, From verses 10 and 11. For thy loving kindness is great to the heavens, and thy truth to the clouds. Then verse 11, be exalted above the heavens, O God. And yeah. so, as great as his loving kindness and truth is, God is even greater. God is even beyond that. It keeps, it, it, in a sense, keeps getting higher and higher. Loving kindness to the heavens is truth to the clouds and be exalted above the heavens, O oh God. So, yeah, that's, that's a good way to say it. And it's good. And God's presence himself is above all. Isaiah? There's a little bit of a chiasm in 7 through 10. Uh-huh. Um, my heart is steadfast, O God. And then in verse 10, your steadfast love is great. Um, yes, yes. I, I, I would, I'm, not, I'm not contradicting your point, uh, but to say it is a different word for steadfast. Just, I'm just letting oh. everybody know. But, but, but okay. that's. But I understand. It, well, I was, I was that's, looking from the set too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I do. We. And I, and I, and I'm going to be. Fr- I'm going to be frank with you. I'm going to be frank with the class. We're a little weak in that respect. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Um, latter part of verse seven. I will sing. The end of verse nine. I will sing. And then in the middle, I'm going to awake and I'm going to give thanks. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's There's good. All kinds of repetition in this. There is. I'll there is a lot of repetition. Praises. Awake, awake, awake. And, and twice a reference to my heart being steadfast, yeah. and and two references to His loving kindness and truth. And like we said in verse one, a couple references to be gracious and taking refuge is used twice in verse one. Not in all your translations, but it's there in the Hebrew. And then God sending. Things in verse three. Hey, so you're right. There is there's a lot of repetition. You know, repetition is an effective way of teaching. Let me say that again. <laughs> repetition is an effective way of teaching. Go ahead. Well, and along those same lines, you've got be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. It's like and it's kind of like. Part of the reason that you should be gracious to me is because my heart is steadfast. Mm-hmm. I'm seeking shelter under your wing, and yes. and I am being steadfast in my trust. And, and exactly, so exactly. Th- that there's another little pile yes. of repetition there. Yes, that's right. And of course, not. And he he uh, he understands that this is mercy or graciousness on God's part, but at the same time, he has sought to walk in God's ways. And he sought to surrender himself to him. Uh, I, I appreciate in verse 4 how he is among the lions and the sons of men. 
And but then in verse nine, I will praise you among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. Yes. And his praise, this is, a lot of this would have been lived out between David and God. But when it is time to praise, he wants everybody to hear it. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises among the nations. The good things God has done for us are not to be hidden away or just something we give him thanks for privately. But there's a reason. There is, there, there, there is a blessing of praising him publicly. A question. The end of verse 7 in the New American Standard Version says, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. The ESV translates that, I will sing and make melody. That's all. I will sing and make melody instead of I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Okay. So is make what they're translating make melody a different word from sing? Yes. Okay. It is two different words. Okay. It is two different words, and um, he said, "My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast." And the words "heart" and "steadfast" are the same. Uh, but the words sing and it, it, they may be used in parallel, parallelism a lot of places but I even think that the translation in the New American Standard I will sing and sing praises they're trying to indicate a little difference there because that word that the, the second word that's used is the word that is used a lot in Psalm 146 through 150 about praising the Lord. I think particularly in Psalm 150 that it's just used. Uh, I believe this is the word used here. Um, no, no, it is. It is not. Yes, it is a mark. That is not the term in Psalm 150, but it is used. It is used at some critical points in the Psalms. It's come up how many times it's used in the Old Testament, John. But I was the form used in uh, Psalm 150 is a form of the term Hallelujah. Forty-six. Okay, it's used forty-six in the Old Testament. They, the, the definition they give uh, here is to make music, but then parenthetical after that. So they say to make music parenthetical in praise to God. Okay. So it's. I see how they connected those. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but it is different words, and I had not noticed that carefully enough. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But it's a good question. Sarah, did you have another thought? Not yet. <laughs> okay, we come to the point that I always look forward to, and I hope you do too, is as we see how does this psalm speak of Jesus, and particularly his cross and resurrection, but, but just in all of his all of his work and his life, how do we see Jesus? through Psalm 57. And so 
Jesus and Psalm 53. Or, <clears throat> excuse me. I can't even remember which one we're on. Psalm 57. At the, by the time you get through this psalm, I can see David saying, Arise, let us be going. Yeah, yeah. I, I, he, he has that confidence in God. Yes. That, uh, God, this is in God's hands. Yes, yes. And um, like, like Jesus did to the disciples, um, yes. His, um, so you're saying from a standpoint of his confidence and trust in God. What else do you see, David? Uh, in verse 1, uh, when he says, And in the shadow of thy wings I will take refuge. That reminds me of Matthew 23, 37, of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hand gathers your chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. And I think uh, Luke 13 also has the same. Yes, Matthew 27, 23, verse 37, and Luke 13... 1334. Verse 34. Now I want you to think about that a second. In the shadow of whose wings is David hide? What does it tell you about Christ when he takes that image and applies it to himself? It shows his deity. shows he's God. And... Um, and I don't think I need to clarify to you that I'm not denying the existence of the Father and the Spirit, but saying Jesus is fully God as the Father is God and the Spirit is God. But the fact that a passage about Elohim, and remember this is the section of the Psalms that emphasize Elohim, that passage is used and applied to Jesus shows us the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. It is, it is a subject that you somehow can prove from almost every page of the New Testament and also a lot of them from the Old Testament, if not all of them. And... Um, but that's you think about the man on the cross being God. Did Jesus know what it was like to say, my soul is among lions? I lie down with those who breathe for fire. The sons of men whose teeth are spears and tongue is a sharp sword. Hey, Jesus experienced all the opposition he did. While he's God, he's, he's God who can hide the disciples and all who would seek refuge in his wing. At the same time, Jesus knows the same kind of opposition, the same kind of hostility David did. I, I will tell you a source that I, I, I like, and, and, and he, I, I doubt 
that he would believe baptism is necessary. But he speaks mainly on evidences. I don't know if you're familiar with the name John Lennox at all. John Lennox. He is a math teacher at Oxford, England. And he does he's goes on speaking tours around American universities and uh, all over the world emphasizing evidences for Christianity. And, and today, I was just listening to a little bit as I was exercising, and he talked about the real problem for Christians isn't science. You know, he, he does these things, can God and science work together? Is science made God obsolete? He says, that's foolish. He said, first of all, to act like science answers all your questions. If science answers all your questions, why do you have a um, philosophy department? Why do you have a history department? Why do you have a literature department if science can answer all your questions? He said, you can't answer all your questions. And he says, science can't tell you what is moral and immoral. He said, Einstein said that there is an um, ethical... He talked about the ethical foundation of science, but you can't talk about the scientific foundation of ethics. Science doesn't tell you what's right and what's wrong. But he, he said, the real problem for Christians in explaining difficulties is not science. Because science has grown in the atmosphere of Christianity. The ones who've made the greatest scientific discoveries are people who are Christians historically. But he says a real problem for Christians and all of us, any worldview, is the problem of suffering. When you see that God did not exempt Himself from suffering, but God Himself experienced suffering. He comes to our world of sin and sorrow and suffers it in the highest degree by being rejected and being spit upon and being crucified. He said, and the fact He was raised again, that gives you, that gives you Christianity's answer to suffering. He said, there's still things we can't explain. And, and we're all baffled. But why did this happen to this person or that person? But we serve a God who did not exempt Himself from suffering. I, I think you'll benefit from Him. And He has got the kindest demeanor. Um, I'm no John Lennox. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> but he has got a really good demeanor. Mary. What's it? <laughs> we, we didn't need any comments. <laughs> Look back, First Corinthians fourteen. Okay, Mary. Uh, uh, I think it's verse two. I, I've got a narrative Bible. I don't have the verses. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Reminded me of Christ on the cross. It is finished. Okay. That he had fulfilled God's purpose for him. Okay. It's, I, need to, I need to check that word more carefully in the Greek translation. I didn't check that, but, but there, you know, that's right. That it is God's purpose accomplished. And certainly that idea is true of Jesus, even if the exact words do not match. 
but it may. And, and it is finished in John 19, I think it's John 19, verse 30. John 19, verse 30. You can look me up and, and correct me. if it, it's, it's off not much, but it might be off a little bit. But, um, yes. Um, what else, Sarah? So, um, awake my glory, awake Carpenter, I will awaken the dawn. Just thinking of the dawn there, I'm thinking Sunday morning, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Sun's coming up. Dawn's being awakened, and it's time. Okay. It's time to praise. Uh, I mean, it's and p- well, particularly you think too, the time that the dawn arises, that is about the time the women are coming to the tomb. Mm-hmm. Mark sixteen one. Yes, uh, that's right. They're coming to the tomb, and. Um, What shows us God's truth and God's loving kindness more than the cross? A cross is the ultimate illustration of his loving kindness or as the ESV has steadfast love. But this is our word, um, kesed, kind of, in that kind of sound, but it's a, a kesed and it's, it's 247 times in the Old Testament. I was just looking this up recently. 128 of those in the book of Psalms. Mm-hmm. Well, over half of those occurrences in the book of Psalms. And it is God's mercy, it is God's compassion, it is God's grace, and God's long-suffering all rolled up into one in this particular important word, one of the most important words in all the Old Testament. But what demonstrates God's grace God's mercy, God's loving kindness, God's long-suffering more than the cross. It shows us His loving kindness and His truth. And also, this phrase used in verse 5 and verse 11, be exalted. Be exalted. That is the word, the word that's used in the Greek translation of Septuagint is the same word when it says, if I be lifted up. John 3, verse 14. John 8, 28. John 12, verse 32. If I be lifted up. And it also speaks... This psalm speaks of of glory. Uses that term in fifty-seven, I believe it's fifty-seven, five, eight, and eleven. And remember how Jesus prayed, "Glorify me with the glory that I shared with you before the world began." John seventeen, verse five. And, and, and Jesus prays, "Glorify your name." John. Um, he uses the verb. Not just the word glory, but the verb glorify in 1223, 1228, 1331, 32, and I believe 171. I believe those are the references. But I may be leaving out something, but those are some pretty powerful connections. Verse, verse 3, he will send from heaven and save. Yes. It just makes you. 
Yes, that's right. The, the greatest gift He sent from heaven is His Son. Very good. Very good. In 57, 3, He, he sent. Um, God who sent... I think it's, is it Romans 8, 31 and 32? About God sending His own Son. The Romans... I think it's Romans 8, 31 and 32 uses this language. Now, let me, though this came in helpful tonight, I'll just mention to you, the reason I brought it is because one of the things that I think is fascinating, some of these commentaries have included pictures from the ancient Near East of other religions and how they sometimes had the same kind of imagery. And and this is a picture of uh, some kind of a god spreading its wings over Pharaoh, if you want to look at this picture. that They had this same kind of imagery, and there's, there's a couple of more on the next page, but they had that same kind of imagery of the gods protecting their people, just like... Israel had that image of the Lord spreading his wings over them. So it was a language that was unknown in the ancient Near East, and yet there's a unique element to it as well because Israel's God is exalted above all the heavens. Uh, He is over all, not just a local regional God, and he protects his servants in the same way. Okay. Thank you for your thoughts. And are you going to try to lead a Psalm 57 song? Do we have one? I don't know if we had one or if we were going to be able to sing from the book. Uh, yeah, we do have a 57 over here. Okay. And since we have copies for what you had come up with. Uh, since we have copies, <laughs> let's, let's do that. Okay, we'll, we'll do that. And just before we... Phil, would you lead us in prayer? God, our Father, we're reminded tonight of how uh, great you are. We see your loving kindness and your truth throughout time and throughout scriptures and how you care for those who follow after you. Help us, Father, that we might take refuge in you and know that you will will protect us uh, in in our trials and help us to look to you for guidance. Father, we... uh, We ask that you would help us to exalt you and to praise you in our lives by the way that we live, by the things that we do, say, and uh, that we might show your glory to others and that we might exalt you in these things. Father, be with us the rest of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Didn't ring a bell till I just yeah. hummed it out. I was like, oh, God, I know this tune.
St. Agnes. You will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two sides of this, uh, so we'll sing the uh, verses 1 through 5. Uh, yeah. But what was the, what is the song? What is the song you're humming? Um, St. Agnes. Yeah, Jesus, but what was Jesus the, the very yeah, but what was the other two? There's another song that has it. There are numbers, number of songs have this too. Perfect, yeah. Yeah. Um, it must just mean. It has a be gracious unto me, O God, be gracious unto me. My soul its refuge finds in you, your wings will shelter me. Safe till destruction passes by, I'll cry to Shame to own my Lord, verses 6 through 10. No, so they spread a net before my steps, my soul bowed down with dread. But though they dug a pit for me, and if they fall instead. Thanks to you among the 
heaven's will in psalms my praise record your steadfast love and mercy great above the heavens rise and your unfailing faithfulness extends unto the skies Exalted high, O God, above the heavens stand, and let your glory be above all earth, both sea and land.